This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Shinivasan in for Catherine Shen. No matter where you live, the opioid epidemic has likely touched you or someone you know. Now, a state committee set up to allocate settlement funds from opioid manufacturers and distributors has just issued its first reporting of disbursements at the municipal level. The stakes couldn't be higher. Each month, more than 100 people die in Connecticut from an opioid overdose, and more than 9,000 lives were lost to fatal overdose since 2015, placing Connecticut in an unfortunate category, states with the highest deadly overdose rates. The vast majority of fatal overdoses are linked increasingly to synthetic opioids like fentanyl and the animal tranquilizer xylazine. After years of litigation, opioid manufacturers and distributors have begun paying $600 million in settlement money to Connecticut, a process that will continue over the next 20 years. Those funds are intended to be allocated in ways that prevent future opioid deaths and will be overseen by the state's 45-member Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee. But how fairly or equitably will these funds be distributed across the state and how can that be measured? Coming up, we'll hear from State Attorney General William Tong and advocates in our region who are working to treat the opioid epidemic. But first, Christine Gagnon in Southington lost her 22-year-old son, Michael, to fentanyl in 2017. She's one of the members of the state's Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee. Joining us now via Zoom is Christine Gagnon. Christine, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. And for our listeners, we want to hear from you. How would you like to see opioid settlement dollars distributed in our state? You can let us know or share your experience. Give us a call at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Christine, I'm so sorry for your loss. No parent should have to go through what you went through. Thank you so much. Tell me about Michael. Um, Michael uh, was a funny, funny kid. Uh, He excelled in football. When he was playing football, he got hurt. He was prescribed an opioid. And that's where our nightmare began. Um, It came to uh, being addicted to opioids, then taking any kind of drug that would help him feel better. Mm-hmm. He went in and out of treatment centers and hospitals and um, was um, was sober. And unfortunately, he wanted to try one more time and that one more time um, cost him his life. Uh, he he took pure fentanyl at the time in 2017. It was talked about, but not really understood. And I knew that this was going to snowball. And here we are. And it's 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 very very. Um, it's like seeing the train coming down the tracks, and you can't stop it. Um, but he was loving. Uh, he had a great, like I said, a great sense of humor. He was very handsome. <laughs> mm-hmm. All the girls loved him. Uh, but yeah, he was, he, it was, it's quite a loss for our family and for anyone that knew him or didn't get to meet him. It was a loss. And he had a whole future ahead of him and he was surrounded by so much love. How are you doing, uh, Christine? Um, I am 
some days I'm ready to take on the world and some days I just want to take a nap. Mm. <laughs> uh, I have been um, in this space before my son had passed away advocating for better treatment um, for a very long time. And I, I think, I hope, I mean, I, I try to see, try to see the positive. I'm hoping we are making some strides, but every time I feel like we're making strides, we're taking two steps back. Um, so it's a constant battle. It keeps me going. Um, my hope is that no other parent or friend or family member has to go through the pain that I have had go through. I'm so sorry. Now tell me what Thank direction you. your advocacy has taken. You're hearing now from um, other parents who were in your situation. So what are you hearing from them? What kind of intervention are they asking for? Um, and, and what kind of gaps are there in terms of what's available versus what's needed? And sort of a yeah. mismatch in getting people connected to the resources on time. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of um, there's a lot of hindrances in our in in the whole plan. I mean, the p point is is when so when a when a person is struggling for help, um, you need to act right away. And you know the HIPAA the HIPAA situation, um, HIPAA laws prevent parents for especially children that are of underage um, to get that help immediately. Also, the lack of good treatment centers. Um, I think, you know, the seven days of or three, three days of detox and then send them on their way. Um, going to the hospital expecting mm -hmm. help and being turned away. Mm -hmm. um, there was a situation in uh, a rehab that I had in New York and they wouldn't take him unless he had drugs in his system. Mm -hmm. So there's parents, I didn't do it, but there's parents that actually take their children to get drugs, to get drugs in their system. So the rehab facility will see them. Uh. Um, it, 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 it's broken and we need, we, we can fix it. And I am trying. <laughs> um, so the lack of treatment, the 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 resources everywhere and it's 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 in the it's in the suburbs it's in the city just the treatment um the lack of it the lack of beds um i've been told by somebody that there's always beds available well no there's not some of some of the beds are being held by some other organizations for when they go through their organization but someone coming off the street there's a lot of times there's no beds um, and then those beds, there there needs to be a longer treatment. There needs to be, my son did very well down in North Carolina mm -hmm. at a rehab facility called Terosa, mm -hmm. and it's a two-year program. Uh, fortunately, he left after eight months, but in those eight months, he was able to be back to Mike and learn skills mm -hmm. and learn how to take care of himself. Again, there was a relapse, but in those eight months, he he did so well. We don't have really a program like that in our state. Now, you you have a powerful platform. You are a voting member of the state's Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee, which is going to convene again <laughs> tomorrow. Now, um, I understand that in a committee, it's a 45-member committee uh, comprising people with lived experience. You bring so much of what parents and families need. Um, and then there are experts, uh, medical experts, um, clinicians, and nonprofit groups. 
but I understand that members were frustrated by how long it took to make the first allocation of $500,000. I mean, the state has received close to $80 million in settlement money to date. Um, in fact, I spoke with one of your fellow members, John Lawley, who also tragically lost his son, Timothy, to opioid overdose. And he was frustrated. This was, I spoke to him before the first allocation in November. He was frustrated that the committee did not even meet until almost a year after it was legislated. What's your experience on the committee been like, especially with regard to the pace of operations? I think it's it's a two it's a two-edged sword. I am frustrated. There is a lot of money, there's a lot of need. But one of the things that, you know, I, I, I have to sit back and think, I mean, I know it's it is it is long and there there's no excuse for it. But also what we're trying to do in Connecticut is make sure that that money doesn't slip through like other states that are that are just squandering money. We we know they are. And we're making sure that this money in the direction of the U.S. attorney's office and William Tong is to make sure that this money is going to where it needs to be. And there's there has to be a vetting process. Um, we do not want this to turn into the tobacco settlement where that money was just squandered. It's very painstakingly, uh, it's painstakingly long. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people involved. The systems that we have to, the the bylaws, the the steps that we have to make sure are the right, go the right way, that nothing falls through the cracks. Um, I think we're there. I think we're going to be able to. Um, move that money going forward in 2024 a lot faster. There was a lot of legwork to be done. Am I frustrated? Yes, because every day, as your opening statement did did say, is that we're losing people every single day, and we need to move faster. And I'm looking forward to tomorrow's meeting to see how we possibly can do that. Um, I'm at the tail end of the committee. I'm on the finance and oversight. And so we have to wait for everything to play out before it comes to our our committee. Um, but I, I am looking forward to being able to be part of the process to approve that money and get it into the hands to the people who can help people. And suddenly the caution is understandable, you know, unlike the tobacco settlement money that went into, you know, fill budget holes, for instance. Uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's Exhibit E. And for those of us that are not familiar with Exhibit E, that's the template, the settlement template of where the monies can possibly be spent. And and that in itself is, leaves it to such broad interpretation. I mean, it could be spent in bowler wrap devices for law enforcement um, to, you know, to buying Narcan, which is what we now learn um, just now from the first released municipal uh, uh, disbursement report at the municipal level in Connecticut. We see this trend, uh, the report that just came out, uh, the trends by Connecticut municipalities is you know, putting Narcan in the hands of first responders and also a focus on training and education. So as you know, last week, the committee issued its first reporting of settlement disbursement at the municipal uh, levels. Connecticut towns and cities have received nearly $10 million. So we know that of the total uh, the settlement amount coming to Connecticut, 15% of it would go to municipalities and the rest to the state. It's, it's a fragmented process. It, you know, it, it doesn't come in all at once. Some of it goes to the state. Some of it goes to the municipalities. Uh, the tribal settlement is uh, entirely different. And then the McKinsey settlement is not under the purview of uh, the, the advisory committee. So it's a highly 
fragmented process. So we've received nearly $10 million you know, at the municipal um, uh, level, um, and uh, more than $1 million of it has been allocated and itemized. Our Where We Live producer, Katie Pellico, spoke with Seattle attorney Christine Minhi. Minhi oversees one of the definitive national databases of opioid settlement disbursements to keep tabs on how well or how badly states and municipalities are doing. So here's what Minhi says about the municipal reporting in, in Connecticut. Let's take a listen. Frankly, I'm pleasantly surprised and I'm, you know, and I would hazard to say kind of astounded because the level of reporting reporting that is typical from other jurisdictions has been something like amount spent plus maybe a one to two sentence description of uses. That would probably be the most typical and the kind of most vanilla default. Connecticut goes a lot further than that just looking at the categories. So for each municipality, you get to see the total abatement funds that were allocated to them expended thus far, the remaining balance, I guess, which is just a matter of simple math, but also whether or not they're collaborating with other municipalities, some insight into their planning process, and also the populations impacted, how the funds were used. I mean, those are multiple parameters of information, which I think is enviable for a lot of jurisdictions. I think a lot of states, you know, let alone localities like states, struggle with, you know, living up to their reporting promises. Christine, um, you know, we've got to give credit where credit is due. You know, when I was um, talking to Christine Minhi earlier on in the process, she wasn't very happy with the wording of of the forms that went out to municipalities. Um, you know, there wasn't a very clear-cut uh, direction in where exactly the money was going. I mean, we are not legislated to report, um, you know, where exactly the municipalities themselves are funneling that money to which nonprofits. Um, but then, you know, th- there was a delay in those reports coming in, and many towns said they were confused, they didn't know what to say. And then when the, when there was an extension, uh, this is the result of that. And, and it's quite encouraging to see how granular this reporting has gone. So we know exactly where that money is going um, in a way that that we're not seeing happen in many other states. Um, tell me, this was a deliberate deliberate move uh, to this level of granularity, and how much more detailed will it get, uh, Christine? For instance, will we come to a point where if doctors in Connecticut want to know how much of the settlement money is going towards Narcan in an ER setting versus a non-ER setting, I mean, will it get as granular as that? Is that one of the objectives? Well, with the municipalities, is for them to report back how they are spending their money. Now, again, with the municipalities, there could be a town that's getting maybe $100. Then there's another town that's getting, you know, close to $80,000. they are reporting back. And I that was one of my questions is to see exactly what kind, as, as a committee, how we can oversee those funds. And we really can't. We have to, we have to, what I was told is that they have to, um, <clears throat> they have the the ability to report back to us. And what we found is that, and I don't have that full report yet. I, be, I think we'll be getting it this week, exactly where the money went from each town who reported back. And I think we had over 90% of the municipalities to, um, that did report back. And they've been very, very open. And actually <clears throat> what was just said in that pre-recorded um 
segment is that, yes, the municipalities are working together to make sure that they can use those funds in the best way to exactly what they're intended for. And that's very encouraging in our state. Um, as far as the next disbursement to the municipalities, we will be doing that as well. And all that information will be public knowledge. So if there is a municipality that is not using the money that um, it was intended for, the public will know. So it's kind of um, us being accountable to each other. Exactly. And you're right. The majority have sent in their um, forms. 166 mm -hmm. of Connecticut's 169 cities and towns have submitted the forms. Now, some, however, haven't made any investments for this very reason that you spoke about. The, you know, the, the, the caution that's required um, in, in spending this money, uh, in making sure that it's sustainable. You know, I spoke with New Haven um, Health Department, for instance, and you know they at the at the time hadn't made any disbursements because they were waiting to select programs that were sustainable. So it was not just a one-time investment, but you know it it, it would it would uh, sort of stretch out into the long term. But then again, weighed against the the data, you know, the two hundred percent spike in uh, overdose deaths in New Haven. Um, so there's mm -hmm. that 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 balance between urgency. Uh, versus, you know, cautious deliberation. Now, let's take a listen um, to a clip from Attorney General William Tong talking about the settlement with our producer, Katie Pellico. We're already so late. Um, when I became Attorney General, we were late, you know, and so every day is a catch-up day. Every year is a catch-up year, and, and, and we're not winning this battle. I think everybody knows that, right? Um, because... Uh, the number of people who die uh, every year around 1,500 in Connecticut and, and the amount of damage to the state, which is sometimes not measured in lives but measured in dollars, is is astronomical. Um, and there's not enough money to make it right. Um, and, and from what I can see right now, not enough money to stop the crisis, um, but we are doing everything we can to abate the crisis. That's the language we use. Um, in our work, and I believe that $50 billion and $600 million directly to Connecticut is going to make a difference. When I settled, it was a very lonely battle indeed, and I took it as far as I could take it. If I could put, if I could put people in jail, I would, um, and, and I hope that people, your listeners, understand that, that, that if any of us could have done that, we would have done it already. We know the Purdue settlement disappointed many, particularly the terms of the deal that protected members of the Sackler family from future lawsuits. What would you like to see as far as accountability, even if beyond this lawsuit and the Sacklers, what does accountability look like to you, Christine? Accountability for the Sacklers would be them being dead broke and in jail. Now, as far as in jail, just like um, William Tong had just said, we don't have that capability. That is up to the Justice Department, and I'm hoping they react tomorrow. It's long overdue. As far as the money that is being tied up and is with the <clears throat> is in the hands of the Supreme Court right now, I do not want that deal to go through. And I know that I am on. We're split in the middle us as parents that have lost our children. Um, there's a lot that want it to go through. I do not. Um, it, it, it will just be a slap on the wrist. It is pennies on the dollar 
of the amount of money they made out of the backs and blood of our children. Um, William Tong has stood by us as parents throughout the whole process. And he is a beacon in this whole mess with them because he did stand at the end of that line alone. Mm -hmm. All the other attorney generals left. Um, just want to take the money and run. He wanted to keep going further and he did get more money towards, you know, for the settlement, but now it's in the hands of the justices and I want them to strike this deal down. So accountability would be broke and in jail. We could just handle the broke part right now. Thank you, Christine. I'm sure none of this was easy for you to coming on the show and to continue advocating for this cause. I hope you continue to heal, and I'm once again so very sorry for what you went through. No parent should have to go through that. You've been listening to Christine Gagnon, a member of the state's Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee. Coming up, we'll hear from Mark Jenkins, founder and executive director of the Connecticut Harm Reduction Alliance, and Tracy Gardner with the Legal Action Center in New York. She's the state's former assistant secretary of mental hygiene. How has the opioid epidemic affected you? And how would you like to see these settlement dollars used? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and X, that's Twitter, at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Shinivasan. This hour, we are discussing equitable spending of $600 million in opioid settlement funds in Connecticut. What sort of metrics might be used to measure equity and to ensure that these dollars are being used to meaningfully address the opioid epidemic? We asked State Attorney General William Tong what measures of equity there are in this process. He pointed to a settlement safeguard that would prioritize forward-looking abatement versus a state using funds to reimbursing themselves, for example. He also touched on why the structure of the state's Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee is important. You know, I think it's probably a distraction to try to find the right words and the right concepts. What this is about is about families and it's about 
people who have lost their lives and people who we are trying to save from yet losing their lives going forward. Um, I'll let others, um, especially those who serve in the legislature and on the Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee, determine in their wisdom what the right way is and to whom to distribute this um, these resources. But to me, it's about distributing those resources as quickly and as effectively as we can to save lives. Mm. Joining us now, both on Zoom, um, to discuss further, Mark Jenkins, founder and executive director of the Connecticut Harm Reduction Alliance. Welcome, Mark. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Tracy Gardner, who leads policy advocacy at the Legal Action Center based in New York. Welcome, Tracy. Good morning. We'd love to have you listeners weigh in too. Where would you like to see opioid settlement funds go? Give us a call at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and X, that's Twitter, at Where We Live. Mark, your organization received the bulk of the $500,000 allocated by the Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee in its first allocation, in part for the syringe exchange program. First, what is your response to the Attorney General's stake on equity? Well, first, your statement is quite incorrect. Uh, that 500000 went to DPH. Oh, uh, my apologies for not making it very clear. I understand that you are part of the DPH program, and DPH would be expanding that program, and, and part of that would be coming to you as well. Well, so the way the process works, and again, um, the system, there are just some systemic issues in, in that process and the timeliness and deliverance of how supplies, so that, that monies, those monies are earmarked for supplies and there are roughly Correct. 13 various syringe service programs yes. in the state. And yes, we are uh, the largest of, of those organizations. We distributed well over a million syringes in the state of Connecticut mm -hmm. in 2023 and collected over 900,000. Uh, but you have to understand the the budget for the drug user health program has not changed pretty much. As a matter of fact, it's even been reduced. Correct. And uh, over the past twenty years, mm -hmm. but the numbers uh, have just uh, increased. You know, I, I couldn't even tell you how many fold, but um, we presently, I believe, now have over 7,000 people uh, who are actively enrolled in the Connecticut Drug User Health Program. Mm. So the, the, the dollar amounts of what DPH, and again, that Drug User Health Program mm -hmm, has mm -hmm. to meet the demands of those people just hasn't kept pace. It has not kept pace. And even some of the measures that we've come up with to increase access to harm reduction best practice, mm -hmm. uh, the state was not able to meet that need. Mm -hmm. So that's what we had to advocate and 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 ask for this money mm -hmm. to be 
released because it was something that could be done right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're, we're hoping that we are able to do that and actually expand uh, through using some of the actual outpatient programs, mm -hmm. expand access to resources. Right. And based on what you've just said, you know, yes, I understand that this is through the DPH. I mean, sorry, I didn't explain the whole process, but um, through the DPH, the, 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 the syringe exchange program and yours being the largest, um, having received uh, uh, part of these settlement funds. Now, what would you like to see done as the next step? I mean, this is a concern that we've had for months now in this process, that the need is vast. Like you say, programs have been underfunded. And uh, the um, numbers, unfortunate statistics of overdose rates um, are, are still unfortunately uh, startlingly high. And uh, the pace of funding really hasn't kept up. So uh, what, what should be streamlined in this process, in your view? I mean, if you were to, to give three top, top suggestions um, to the committee in terms of, you know, meeting the demand on time, what, what uh, suggestions would you give them? Well, first off, that funds such as that money that was just released were to go to an organization that could readily turn that money around and get it out. We Now, keep in mind, we don't get a penny of that money physically. We don't receive any of that. That money is all earmarked for supplies that have to go through the fiscal DPH system. Mm which right now is, you know, I, I, for a case in point, it took us uh, the better part of four months to get a purchase order through that system. Mm. So you cannot keep programs running efficiently. Uh, you can't serve people in the way that they need to be served. So I think we need to first off develop a hub and spoke model, if mm. you will, and bypass the state, you know, and and the and 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 being able to get supplies. Mm. First, if we can get that part done, mm. then we can begin to adequately make sure that those programs around the state that are working to get these materials out mm. uh, have access to that. Right. So directly put the funds in the hands of nonprofits versus. Um, through the state system, the funnel through the state system that's taking time. Yes. Okay. Um, Tracy, how would you respond to that in terms of what your experience working in New York is and how doable is this? So Mark is absolutely right that the um, process by which funds are uh, need to get out to where they're most needed is hampered by, you know, decades of that you know, hundreds of years old bureaucracy that wasn't designed, quite frankly, to respond to the urgency of the overdose epidemic that we have. Mm. And that's an important point is that prior to this op opioid op uh, epidemic, and there have been previous opioid op epidemics, this one is through prescription painkillers, mm. and this, um, the lawsuits that have garnered more money to the addiction field mm -hmm. that has ever been seen. And so prior to this windfall, if you will, mm -hmm. these are local state um, entities who have been making do with pennies, mm -hmm. trying to stretch the dollar. And now all of a sudden, or not all of a sudden, but now they're being expected to 
move vast amounts of money with a sense of urgency out to communities hard hit. And New York is not unique in that. <clears throat> There's a challenge of getting funds through our state addiction agency to the places where the epidemic is hurting people the most. Now, New York has one of the oldest addiction treatment systems, mm -hmm. and New York was is definitely, um, uh, I would say, very much ahead of other states in terms of getting the funds out. Mm -hmm. But um, the issue is, and you talked about equity earlier, how do you get the funds to the places where um, the epidemic is, is being felt the most? In, in New York, Black New Yorkers are dying faster than anyone mm. um, from the overdose epidemic. And yet it is unclear how the funds, we got 192 million um, just last year, and we are slated to get 2.6 billion over the next 10 years. How are those dollars going to get to the communities that need the most and the interventions that make the most sense? Connecticut was ahead of the game um, in the AIDS epidemic by um, piloting one of the first needle exchange programs. And Mark Jenkins' work just carries on that legacy. But now here we are needing some of the same strategies that we use during the HIV AIDS epidemic. And we have um, resistance from our governments about funding um, interventions like overdose prevention centers, which we have in New York, two of them, the most, um, two overdose prevention centers that are the legal ones um, in the country, and they have been shown to be effective and save lives. And so that is one of the challenges that we're facing. It's great to have all of this money, but if it can't get out and get to where the, the need is the greatest, mm. then um, we potentially look to repeat the mistakes of tobacco settlement. So in that sense, um, Mark is very accurate. And, um, you know, the Connecticut AG's remarks, Tish James from New York, uh, who's our AG, was, you know, the leader in moving ahead to suing the pharmaceutical companies for the prescription, pain, their, their role in prescription pain um, pill epidemic. But we had people struggling with, um, with substance use disorder well before that started happening. And so we are seeing money put onto a system that has been under duress for decades. And so how do we fix the system and get the money out and address the disparities? We talk about equity. There is There are disparities in communities of color across this country. Mm -hmm. Every state that has a sizable black community also has sizable overdose numbers among their um, among their black um, uh, citizens. So, you know, there is a lot that we are going to need to do and see um, as this funding continues to flow. But <clears throat> the sense of urgency can't be sacrificed for also accountability. And so, um, as Christine Minhe pointed out, there aren't very many mechanisms of accountability in these opioid settlement funds. Few of the opioid settlement boards have people with lived experience, mm. people who actually navigated um, with their substance use disorder through the systems that we have to weigh in on how these funds should be sent. Families and parents who've lost a child 
are definitely part of that lived experience, but they aren't the people who were addicted. They aren't the people who had to um, go through the various systems to try to come into recovery. And so that perspective has to be at the table. We did it with HIV and AIDS through Ryan Mm -hmm. White Care. We can do it with these opioid settlement dollars. It has to be informed by people with lived experience. Thank you, Tracy. I have just a couple of minutes, um, but I'd like both of your response to Christine Minhe. And uh, as you know, she is um, a, a lawyer. She tracks a opioid uh, settlement distribution website nationally, one of the most definitive websites. And she touched on how harm reduction plays into this conversation about uh, measuring meaningful, equitable spending. Let's take a listen. The reason why I decided to go on, go to law school in the first place was because the war on drugs pissed me off so much. You know, I come from a family and from an area and from a community directly impacted by the war on drugs. Um, and I have to say that the first time I noticed the the national discussion turning its attention in an earnest sense to drug policy, the history of the drug war, and you know who are dying, who you know what types of folks are dying from drug overdoses. The first time I've seen the attention shift so heartily has been with the opioid litigation and the opioid settlements. And what cynics, and perhaps they would call themselves rationalists, what cynics would say is that, you know, perhaps it's because the people who have typically had the most political power who are demographically dying off the most, perhaps that's the reason why people are paying attention to this issue. But that refrain was perhaps circa 2018, 2019. But now we're seeing overdose numbers shift into what it's always been for war on drugs familiar folks, which is that Black, Brown, Indigenous men are dying at the highest rates. So now the war on drugs has fully entered the chat before it was kind of implied by opioid litigation, the opioid settlements. But now, you know, if you're not considering abatement, a question of poly substance use, then you are living in a vacuum, just scientifically, just purely from the data. Tracy, could you briefly respond to that quickly? So how does uh, or you know, how should racial data play into this conversation in your view? Well, <clears throat> Christine is, in my opinion, the foremost um, expert on this issue. And it's absolutely the conundrum that we're in. These systems, these addiction treatment systems, these services were built during the war on drugs. They were built to be a criminal justice response, not a health response. And so not taking into account how these services have been formulated, which is more to criminalize people with substance use disorders rather than help them stay healthy is the fundamental challenge that many states face because many states built up their infrastructure to treat people who use drugs with a criminal justice response as an outcome of the war on drugs. So that is fundamentally, and so the prescription pill epidemic met the war on drugs and is finding it inadequate. And that is where we really need to be absolutely Um, stark and candid about that gap. Only people's lives will be saved when when there's a realization of the system um, that was built and how it was built and how we're going to build the bridge between what resources are happening because of prescription pill epidemic 
and what was existing in terms of infrastructure to serve black and brown people, and I say serve in quotes, who were really the targets of the war on drugs. Mark, we know that as far as the racial uh, breakdown goes since this epidemic began, Connecticut lost a majority of white residents, though those numbers amid native um, individuals. National numbers reflect that in 2020, the data tipped to majority black and Native Americans dying from opioid overdoses. Um, how should race, um, you know, race data play into this conversation? I mean, how do we actually uh, bring that into a quantifiable uh, way and, and, and a measurable, meaningful um, solutions offered through the committee? So this is where so many of the issues and even the things that were brought up and talking about things being equitable, you look at what the committee looks like. Um, we, we know that the epidemic has disproportionately affected black and brown communities. Um, yet the responses that are on the table do not directly affect or meet the needs or even directly are, are even are used or are going to be implemented by organizations that are in entrenched in those communities, if you will. Um, this is turning into really and everything is shaping up and everybody's positioning themselves mm. to be business as usual, where the usual suspects uh, will garner the most amount of monies in this situation. And, and 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 it's really it's ironic because we still you have to understand that the most effective public health responses aren't favorable by the average citizen or members of this committee. You know, uh, when you talk about overdose prevention centers, when you talk about plane dropping centers, mm. when you talk about mobile methadone. Mm more access to methadone. Uh, these are things that are taking the longest time but are the most effective in response. We're, we're just getting to a point now where Narcan and fentanyl test strips, mm. they, you know, while they are measures, that is not harm reduction. Mm. That is not the essence of harm reduction. But again, you have organizations such as SAMHSA, uh, the CDC, and many that this is the approach mm. that is palatable to them. And these are the mes methods that are being pushed the most. But again, at, at what level? Mm. You know, most of our responses still right now are reactive. Mm. They're not proactive and they're not going to be done by communities of color. So, you know, there are a lot of lot a lot of issues, a lot of issues, systemic and otherwise, that we have to 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 get around. We're going to be continuing this conversation um, in a moment, but uh, you've been listening uh, to Mark Jenkins uh, from the Harm Reduction Alliance and Tracy Gardner with the Legal Ac Action Center in New York, and we want to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live.
In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Shinivasan. Back with us to share their hopes for how opioid settlement funds will be spent in our state on Zoom are Mark Jenkins, founder and executive director of the Connecticut Harm Reduction Alliance, and Tracy Gardner uh, from uh, New York. I, I just understand that Tracy had to hop from Zoom um, and so we will be staying um, this, this last segment uh, with Mark. Mark, um, I asked you uh, for, for three solutions, three, three strong recommendations for our state committee, and you came up with two, uh, which is um, rather than funding, uh, funneling funds through state organizations. Like, for example, we spoke about how money is coming to your nonprofit um, through the syringe exchange program that's being funneled through the DPH, but rather, you know, um, avoiding those delays of funds reaching to you, putting funds directly in the hands of nonprofits so they can get them out on time is one. And the other is to formulate policies through a very mindful equity lens, you know, to say that this exactly is how much and where monies are going to go um, to alleviate some very specific problems in brown, in, in black, in Hispanic communities. I, I also then want to talk to you a little bit um, about, you know, the, the tension between funding existing programs and taking a, a, a sort of a, a, a proactive look rather than you say, you know, you mentioned a reactive look, a proactive look um, to, to new programs. For example, among the many excellent resources this committee has are recommendations from Yale, which I'm sure you've seen as well on how best to allocate the opioid abatement, the settlement funds. Some time back, I spoke with Sam Rivera. I'm sure you know him, founder of the of On Point in New York, and he launched the country's first overdose uh, prevention centers, two centers that monitor uh, drug consumption on site. And Sam told me that the state settlement allocation committees should look into funding new programs like these, along with funding existing programs, which seems to be the trend right now. You know, look at what, look at the proven metrics, and then put the funds there. What are your thoughts? Well, I have to agree with Sam. Uh, you know, but again, as I just said prior to the break, the most public, the most ef effective public health responses are going to be met with the most resistance because they tend to inform, or, or I'll say, excuse me, to uh, insult our morals, offend our morals, if you will. Um, yet, so, you know, syringe service programs, overdose prevention centers, mm. which we know around the world uh, have not had any fatalities, but are able to really meet people in that harm reduction sense where you hear that term, meet people where they are, mm. systems that offer true warm handoffs to other forms of available treatment that are, you know, effective, that are able to, you know, that don't require people mm. to be abstinent when they start. Um, we have to begin to 
change our thought process and how do we tailor services that are appealing to those individuals we are trying to reach versus what we feel they should have. Mm. And that's where the we we were met with a lot of resistance is most of the, we've had this cookie cutter process of engaging people for so many years. And as Tracy meant, and she's so much more eloquent in stating this, is that the systems have been punitive for so many years or such an abstinence-based model mm. that that's where we're stuck. And right now, our moving forward is going to have to come away from that abstinence-based model to one of understanding how this population that we engage right now, and even more so because I heard it mentioned about the, the pills, of this next wave of this epidemic, mm. which will be the counterfeit pills. Mm. Which there's not been a lot of conversation over. And what? the fact that every, you know, law enforcement, DEA, um, you know, the OMDCP, they will 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 acknowledge we don't have a way yet to combat these counterfeit pills. Mark, that brings me um, to education, public education. It's going to be my last question because we have less than a minute to spare. Uh, what does public education, especially in schools, uh, you know, how does it look like, you know, in terms of what the committee can do and how we reach um, these populations in ways that we've not been able to do so before? Listen, and understanding that even in education and youth, we have to meet them where they are. Again, not our morals and how we think things should and shouldn't be presented to them. In the social media world, our kids are, have access to a lot more information than we ever did coming up. And they get a lot more information than we ever did. So for us to still live in the dark ages, this is not the 60s, 70s, or 80s. We, we're dealing with... Uh, youth that need to get information really from the hip and, and give them that information just in a realistic way. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate your time with us today. Mark Jenkins, a founder and executive director of the Connecticut Harm Reduction Alliance. I'm Sujata Srinivasan. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and... Be well.